When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. In today's episode, I'll be talking about polyandry, the practice of a wife taking more than one husband. I remember once seeing someone post a question How come whenever there are multiple spouses in a marriage, it's always one man with multiple wives? I'm going to sound like a broken record before these marriage and family episodes are through, but anyone who's taken more than a handful of cultural anthropology courses will understand that question comes from an erroneous assumption. In fact, there are cultures where a family structure consists of one wife and multiple husbands. It's a marriage system known as polyandry. Polygamy generally conjures up images of one man and many wives here in the U.S. because that's the form we're used to seeing in some U.S. religious subcultures and also in the Middle East. But in fact, polygamy simply means having multiple spouses, whether they are husbands or wives. The label for one husband with many wives is technically polygyny, and polyandry describes a wife with many husbands. When we looked at the Nayara of India, We saw that women in that culture initially took a ritual husband who bore no marital obligations and then had any number of visiting husbands throughout their lives. But areas of the world where the practice of polyandry is less fluid and similar to the models of polygyny that we are used to would include areas like Tibet and the South Pacific. I should point out that when I was in college, polyandry was considered to be more rare than it is considered to be now. The more we've learned about the model, the more we've come to understand that it is more broadly applicable to more societies, both currently and historically, than we originally thought. In 2012, Catherine E. Starkweather and Raymond Hames published the paper A Survey of Non-Classical Polyandry, which pointed to more cases in more areas of the globe and suggested that this practice should not be considered anomalous but a cultural strategy to cope with situations where multiple husbands may be advantageous for different reasons. A write-up on their findings was featured in The Atlantic, and it had this to say. Rather than treating polyandry as a mystery to be explained away, Starkweather and Hames suggested polyandry constitutes a variation on the common evolutionarily adaptive phenomenon of pair bonding, a variation that sometimes emerges in response to environmental conditions. What kind of environmental conditions? Well, classical polyandry in Asia has allowed families in areas of scarce farmable land to hold agricultural estates together. The marriage of all brothers in a family to the same wife allows plots of family-owned land to remain intact and undivided. In other cultures, it appears that a man may arrange a second husband, again frequently his brother, for his wife because he knows that when he must be absent, the second husband will protect his wife and thus his interests. And if she gets impregnated while husband number one is gone, 
it'll be by someone of whom he has approved in advance. Anthropologists have recorded this kind of situation among certain cultures among the Inuit, the people formerly called Eskimos. End quote. Anthropology is always evolving models with new information. Because of this, before I write up these summaries, I take some time to check current resources and references to see what the current framing for these models and societies may be. We can even gain new insights into cultures that have become extinct or become assimilated. For example, as new excavations uncovered new manuscripts, our understanding of ancient Hebrew texts had to be updated. So even a culture that has ended far back in antiquity, our understanding of it can continue to grow and change. I intend to talk about polyandry, specifically in Tibet, because that was the region I recall studying in college. But in light of some of the Nayar and Partible Paternity episodes, it seems fitting to include this quote from Britannica's entry on polyandry. A related form of marital union, sometimes called secondary marriage, obtains when a married woman cohabits with a man other than her husband without having terminated the marriage by annulment or divorce. Polyandry must be distinguished from privileged sexual access to a married woman, a practice that was fairly common in traditional cultures and was often associated with customs of kinship, hospitality, or fertility rights. End quote. In a future episode, I'll be talking about something called wife-sharing that's considered outside of polygamy and would be more accurately described as a form of non-exclusive monogamy. I sincerely hope that these posts are providing food for thought around cultural flexibility available for marriage and family structures. So much of our own thinking in the U.S., and even in the West more broadly, is tied into being unaware of these alternatives or not understanding the deeper implications for questions of kinship. For example, if a woman has many husbands, visiting husbands, or is a wife who is shared with men who are not her husband, how is paternity understood and assigned? With paternity tests being a fairly recent development, social choices had to be made around obligations and rights with regard to progeny. And even in cultures with similar structures, those decisions were not always the same. Again, pulling from Britannica. Polyandrous cultures have devised several methods through which to designate the ancestry of the children of such marriages. In fraternal polyandry, the children are often said to be descended from the eldest brother alone, while in other cases, fatherhood is established through a ceremony, or the children are said to have descended from all of the husbands equally. End quote. The particular form of polyandry in Tibet that I recall studying was fraternal polyandry, the practice of brothers sharing a wife. And in these situations, the women exercise little control over the situation. The eldest brother is the decision maker and would also be the one to decide whether to allow additional husbands and who those husbands would be. This should not be confused with the idea that women in these situations are automatically oppressed. In the article, When Brothers Share a Wife, authored by Melvin Goldstein, he asks a young woman about to marry three brothers about her thoughts. She responds by explaining she believes it will be advantageous to her in that the family land does not have to be fragmented for inheritance, and she will do well to have three husbands working for her to keep up the household and the children. Another interesting fact I came across while refreshing my research in this area was a passage from a paper also by Melvin Goldstein about marriage structures in the Limi Valley in northwest Nepal. In his paper, Fraternal Polyandry and Fertility in a High Himalayan Valley in Northwest Nepal, he writes the following. As in most areas of Tibetan culture, 
The largest kinship unit in Limi is the corporate family. Marriages are usually patrilocal and either monogamous or polyandrous, fraternal. In Limi, I have recorded fraternal polyandrous marriage with up to five brothers sharing a bride, although normally the number is only two or three. Contrary to practices in Tibet, bigenerational polyandry and polygyny, father and son or mother and daughter sharing a spouse, are not permitted. Plural polyandry or polygynandry, two or more brothers sharing more than one wife, is, however, encountered. Also, unlike standard Tibetan practice, is the fact that bilateral cross-cousin marriage, marriage for a male to his mother's brother's daughter or father's sister's daughter, is esteemed in Limi, whereas in Tibet it is considered incestuous. Such cross-cousin marriage may be polyandrous or monogamous. End quote. Before proceeding, I'll stop to interject my example of mild xenophobia that I've been including in all the other episodes. In the Atlantic write-up, they talk about how it was that the field of anthropology came to regard polyandry as being far more rare than it was. The answer boils down to one anthropologist, George Murdoch, who narrowly defined polyandry to the point it excluded situations that could reasonably be included as polyandrous, socially valid unions. His definition caught on in 1957 and was repeated in even stricter terms down to the present day. According to the Atlantic author, in an email interview with me, Starkweather remarked, I don't think that anyone, including Murdoch, was operating from an explicitly sexist standpoint. However, I do think that the definitions of polyandry and thus perceptions about its rarity may have been due, at least in part, to the fact that an overwhelming percentage of anthropologists collecting data and shaping theory at the time were men. During Murdoch's time, there seemed to be a fairly pervasive belief that polyandry didn't make any sense from a male's perspective. End quote. Looking at Tibet specifically, the regions that include polyandry also allow polygyny and monogamy. Their culture extends a lot of flexibility to marriage and family structures in this regard. It also extends flexibility for brothers to leave these unions if they decide to do so. And interestingly, the children remain in the house, even if some are known to be the offspring of a brother who divorces himself from the marriage. These are not models of marriage, family, or paternity that we often encounter in the U.S. Most people I engage in discussions on these topics aren't aware that these cultural alternatives exist. And the more homogenous the globe becomes the less people will have opportunity to study or understand or encounter these social and cultural options. And one more time, I want to touch on the concept of jealousy and how destructive it is in our society. Our model of monogamy paired with exclusivity has done immense damage and destruction to families and individuals. And while I can't say from whence comes jealousy, I can say that the levels of it and the havoc it wreaks in a society is flexible If jealousy does exist everywhere, it certainly does not exist to the same degree or in the same forms that we are used to in the United States. For many people living in the U.S., the mere thought of multiple partners is untenable, and I have to wonder how much of this type of thinking is enculturated, similar to indoctrination. The mechanisms seem very familiar, promoting the benefits of our own system while keeping people quite ignorant about alternative options playing up risks and problems with any known alternatives while downplaying the damage and heartbreak caused by monogamous exclusive expectations. 
When I look at the Tibetan model of monogamy, polygyny, polyandry, and polygynandry, it stands out to me that only one of these models dominates in the West. It seems to coincide with the predominant Christian model that was spread around the globe via colonialism. Considering it took us centuries to accept the concept of marriage for gay couples, I don't hold out much hope that the models that prevail in our own culture will be changing all that much anytime soon. But I would still like for people to actually be making an informed choice when they enter into relationship models, and I hope these podcasts help better inform people. As usual, these episodes are not deep dives. They're intended as food for thought, high-level information, provided to help people understand alternative and flexible concepts of marriage and family. If anyone would like to do further reading or a deeper dive on their own study time, I'm including my resources in the description to help you get started. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.